my friends, to the Big Book Podcast. My name is Howard, and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. In this, the 83rd episode, story number 11 in part 3 of the personal stories section of the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous, published in 1955. It's entitled, He Who Loses His Life, and appeared in both the second and third editions. This story was penned by Bob R., who sobered up in New York City, AA, in 1947. The story's literary flair reflects Bob's earlier ambitions of becoming a playwright and the depths to which he had descended prior to sobriety. Though not much is known about Bob, he did write a follow-up to his story in the big book for a 1967 issue of The Grapevine entitled, Come On, Be Happy Too. The article provided an updated perspective of a sober member of AA some 12 years after the original big book story. Bob wrote, I hope I am no less human for being dry, 20 years plus dry, in AA. The bad old years, the years of suffocating in the deep morass of alcoholism, are years I could have used to good advantage had I not been trapped by this hideous disease. There were seven or eight years before I found AA. Oh, how I could have used those years. But they were not wasted. They stripped me of everything, including self-respect but they made me ready for the happiness of the last 20 years in AA. And now, Part 3, Story 11, He Who Loses His Life. An ambitious playwright, his brains got so far ahead of his emotions that he collapsed into suicidal drinking. To learn to live, he nearly died. I remember the day when I decided to drink myself to death quietly, without bothering anyone, because I was tired of having been a dependable, trustworthy person for about 39 years, without having received what I thought was a proper reward for my virtue. That was the day, that was the decision, I know now, when I crossed over the line and became an active alcoholic. Perhaps a better way of saying it is that, on that day, with that decision, I no longer fought drinking as an escape. Rather, I embraced it, I must in honesty admit it, with a great sense of relief. I no longer had to pretend. I was giving up the struggle. Things weren't going as I thought they should, for my greater enjoyment, comfort, and fame. Therefore, if the universe wouldn't play my way, I wouldn't play at all. I, a man of steel, with very high ideals, well brought up, an honor student and the recipient of scholarships and prizes, a boy wonder in business, I, Bob, the author of this essay, looked and saw that the universe was beneath my contempt, and that to remove myself from it was the only thing of dignity a man could do. Since, perhaps, suicide was a bit too drastic, actually I was afraid, Dry martinis were chosen as the slow, pleasant, private, gradual instrument of self-destruction. And it was nobody's business, nobody's but mine. So I thought. Within a month, the police, the hospital authorities, several kind strangers, most of my friends, all of my close relatives, and a few adepts at rolling a drunk and removing his wristwatch and wallet had been involved. There was a time, for about three months, when I bought a ten-dollar wristwatch every payday, that is, every two weeks. Since it was wartime, I explained to the somewhat startled shopkeeper that I had many friends in the service whom I was remembering with a watch. Perhaps without realizing it, I was. 
On that day of decision, I didn't acknowledge that I was an alcoholic. My proud southern blood would have boiled if anyone had named me such a despicable thing. No, it can best be explained in a little phrase I coined and sang to myself. What happened to Bob? Bob found alcohol. And having sung that phrase, I'd chuckle with amusement, turning into irony, turning into self-contempt, turning into self-pity, at the sad fate of Bob, that wonderful poor little motherless boy who was so smart in school, and who grew up to accept responsibility, so early and so fast, and who staggered under his burdens without a whimper, until the time came when he thought he was too good for this world, and so he ought to be out of it. Poor Bob! That was one aspect of it, and a true one. There were several others. There was loneliness. There was the necessity for sticking to a job I hated, a dull, repetitive job performed in association with other men I had nothing in common with, performed for years on end because the money was needed at home. There was the physical aspect, to be the youngest and the runt of the brood of children, to have to wear glasses very early, and so to be teased, to be bookish and bored in school because the captain of the football team could not translate Virgil, and yet was the school god while you, you, you little shrimp, were the school egghead, junior size, and an early model. There was the father one lost respect for at the age of eleven, because the father broke his solemn word in a circumstance where you, eleven years old, had assumed guilt when you were innocent. But the father would not believe you, no matter what, and to ease his suffering you confessed and were forgiven only months later to have your guilt brought up. Only he and you knew what he was talking about, brought up in front of the stern grandmother. The sacred word was broken, and you never trusted your father again and avoided him. And when he died, you were unmoved. You were thirty-five before you understood your father's horrible anguish and forgave him and loved him again. For you learned that he had been guilty of the thing he had accused you of, and his guilt had brought suffering to his entire family, and he thought he saw his young son beginning his own tragic pattern. These things were all pressures for by thirty-five I had been drinking for a few years. The pressures had started long ago. Sometimes we are told in AA not to try and learn the reasons for our drinking, but such is my nature that I must know the reason for things, and I didn't stop until I had satisfied myself about the reasons for my drinking. Only, having found them, I threw them away and ordered another extra dry martini. For to have accepted the reasons and to have acted on them would have been too great a blow to my ego, which was as great in reverse as my body was small. In my twenties I found Edna St. Vincent Millay's verse, Pity me the heart that is slow to learn, what the quick mind sees at every turn. That couplet contains most of my reasons for drinking. There was the love affair which was ridiculous. Imagine that midget being able to fall in love and my head knew it while my heart pumped real, genuine anguish, for it hurt like hell, and since it was first love, things have never been quite the same. There was the overweening ambition to be the world's greatest author when, at thirty-nine, I had nothing of importance to say to the world. There was the economic fear which made me too timid to take any action which might improve my circumstances. There was the sense of being misunderstood, 
when as a matter of fact, by my middle twenties, I was quite popular, although I hadn't grown much bigger physically. But the feeling was a crutch, an excuse. It was my secret garden, bluntly. It was my retreat from life, and I didn't want to give it up. For a while, for a long time, we can endure the intellect's being ahead of the emotions, which is the import of Malay's couplet. But as the years go by, the stretch becomes unbearable, and the man with the grown-up brain and the childish emotions, vanity, self-interest, false pride, jealousy, longing for social approval, to name a few, becomes a prime candidate for alcohol. To my way of thinking, that is a definition of alcoholism, a state of being in which the emotions have failed to grow to the stature of the intellect. I know there are some alcoholics who seem terribly, terribly grown up, but I think that they are trying to make themselves think they are grown up, and the strain of their effort is what is causing them to drink, a sense of inadequacy, a childish vanity to be the most popular, the most sought after, the mostest of the most. And all this, of course, is, in the popular modern jargon, compensation for immaturity. I wish I knew a shortcut to maturity, but I wanted a cosmos, a universe all my own which I had created, and where I reigned as chief top reigner and ruler over everyone else. Which is only another way of saying, I had to be right all the time, and only God can be that. Okay, I wanted to be God. I still do. I want to be one of his children, a member of the human race, and as a child is a part of his father, so do I now want to be a part of God. For always, over and above everything else, was the awfulness of the lack of meaning in life. Now for me, and to my satisfaction, I know the purpose of life. The purpose of life is to create, and the byproduct is happiness. To create. Everyone does it, some at the instinct level, others in the arts. My personal definition, which I submit as applying only to myself, although everyone is welcome to it who wants it, includes every waking activity of the human being. To have a creative attitude towards things is a more exact meaning, to live and to deal with other human beings creatively, which to me means seeing the God in them and respecting and worshiping this God. If I write with the air of one who has discovered the obvious, which is to say, the eternal truths which have been offered to us since the beginning, forgive my callousness. I had to find these things out for myself. Alas, for us men toward whom Shaw hurled his cry, must a Christ be crucified in every generation for the benefit of those who have no imagination? My serious drinking covered about seven years, in those years I was in jail nine times, in an alcoholic ward overnight, twice, and I was fired from three jobs, two of them very good ones. As I write these words, it seems incredible that these things should have happened to me, for they are, truly, against all my instincts and training. Well, I started to cross out that last sentence, but decided to let it stand. What a revelation of ego and arrogance still remaining in me, as if anyone, instinct and training apart, likes to be in jail or in an alcoholic ward or fired from his job. After nearly eight years of sobriety in AA, I still can set down such thoughts against my instinct and training, showing that I still consider myself a special person, entitled to special privileges. I ask the forgiveness of the reader, 
and from now on I shall try to write with the humility I honestly pray for. A pattern established itself. I never was a secret drinker, and I never kept a bottle at home. I'd visit one bar after another, having one martini in each, and in each hoping to find someone interesting to talk to. Actually, of course, I wanted someone to listen to me, because when I had a few martinis inside, I became the great author I longed to be, and the right listener was in for some pretty high-flown theories of literature and of genius. If the listener were drunk enough, the lecture might go on through several martinis, which I was glad to pay for. If he were still sober, chances are that very quickly I put him down as a Philistine with no appreciation of literary genius, and then I went on to another bar to find a new victim. So it was that in alcohol I found fulfillment. For a little while I was the great man I wanted to be, and thought myself entitled to be just by reason of being me. I wonder if there ever has been a sillier reason for getting drunk all the time. Sobering up, the mind that was ahead of the emotions would impel the question, What have you written down or done to be the great man? This question so insulted the emotions that clearly there was only one thing to do, go and get drunk again, and put that inquiring mind in its proper place, which was oblivion. Depending on the stage of drunkenness, eventually I either fought or went to sleep. Brandishing my motto, which was, A little man with a stick is equal to a big man, sometimes I varied the literacy lecture by a fight with a big man, selected solely because he was big and I was little. I bear a few scars on my face from these fights, which I always lost, because the stick existed only in my mind. So did the water boy and the high school football team attempt to revenge himself on the big brother who was the star quarterback. For I was the water boy, and my brother was the star quarterback, innocent of everything except the fact that he was a star quarterback. When sleep overtook me, my practice was to undress and go to bed, wherever. Once this was in front of the Paramount Theater in Times Square, I was down to my shorts, unaware of wrongdoing, before the ambulance got there and hauled me off to a hospital, from which anxious friends rescued me later that night. Still another friend and temporary host received me at four in the morning from the charge of a policeman who had found me going to bed in a garage far from the last place I could remember having been, a fashionable bar and restaurant in the theatrical district of New York, to which I had repaired after my date for that evening, a charming lady of the theater who had refused my company for obvious reasons. This time, whoever had ruled me had taken my glasses as well. They were gold. When the policeman released me to my stupefied and exasperated friend at four in the morning, I went to my traveling bag and groped until I found, well, let the officer speak. Ah, said the policeman, he's got another pair, thank God. Thank you, Mr. Policeman, wherever you are now. I mentioned that this friend was my temporary host. Need I add that such was the case because I still had no money to provide a roof over my head? Still, I had had funds sufficient to get plastered because that, of course, was more important than paying my own way. Once, or even twice, such incidents might be amusing. Repeated year on end, they are horrible, frightening, and degrading, a chronicle of tragedy which may be greater because the individual undergoing the tragedy, myself, knew what was happening, and yet refused to do anything to stop it. One by one, the understanding friends dropped away, 
the helpful family finally said over long distance that there would be no more money and that I could not come home. I say refused to do anything to stop it. The truth is I did not know how to stop it, nor did I want to, really. I had nothing to put in the place of alcohol, of the forgetfulness, of the oblivion which alcohol provides. Without alcohol, I would be really alone. Was I the disloyal sort who would turn his back on this, my last and truest friend? I fled finally after having been fired from my war job by a boss who wept a little, for I had worked hard, as he gave me notice for me to clear out. I went back home to a job of manual labor, where for a little while I was able to keep away from alcohol, but not for long. Now, for five Fridays in a row, I went to jail, picked up sodden with beer, which I always disliked, but which was the only drink available, in jail five consecutive Friday nights in the town where I had grown up, where I had been an honor student in high school, where a kindly uncle, bailing me out, said, Bob, our family just doesn't do this sort of thing. I had replied, Uncle, give the judge ten dollars, or I'll have to work it out on the county road. I was in hell. I wandered, craving peace, from one spot to another of youthful, happy memory, and loathed the man I had become. I promised on the grave of a beloved sister that I would stop drinking. I meant it. I wanted to stop. I did not know how. For by now I had been exposed once to AA, but I had treated it as a vaudeville, and had taken friends to meetings so that they too could enjoy the fascination of the naked revelation of suffering and recovery. I thought I had recovered. Instead, I had gotten sicker. I was fatally ill. AA had not worked for me. The reason, as I learned later, was that I had not worked for AA. I left this hometown then, after I had made a public spectacle of myself in the presence of a revered teacher whose favorite pupil I had been. I could not face the boy and the youth I was in the reality of the contemptible man I had become. Back to the big city for another year of precarious living, paid largely by one or two friends I still had not milked dry or worn to exhaustion with demands on their bounty. I worked when I could, piddling jobs, I thought them. I was not capable of anything better. I stumbled agonizingly past the theater, where in years gone by a great star had played my play. I had even borrowed money from her, over her protest. Bob, please don't ask me to lend you money. You're the only one who hasn't. I took her money, though. I had to have it. It paid for a ten-day binge, which was the end of my drinking days. Thank God that those days are gone. On another small borrowed sum, I went up into the country to the home of a doctor I had known since boyhood. We worked in five below zero weather, fixing on an elm tree a wrought iron device which modestly proclaimed that he was indeed a country doctor. I had no money, well, maybe a dime, and only the clothes I stood in. Bob, he asked quietly, do you want to live or die? He meant it. I knew he did. I did not remember much of the ten-day binge, but I remembered the years of agony preceding the binge. I remembered the years I had thrown away. I had just turned forty-six. Maybe it was time to die. Hope had died, or so I thought. But I said humbly, I suppose I want to live. I meant it. From that instant to this, nearly eight years later, I have not had the slightest urge to drink. 
I choose to believe that the power greater than ourselves we ask for help wrapped my shivering body in loving warmth and strength, which has never left me. The doc and I went back into the house. He had a shot of brandy against the cold and passed me the bottle. I set it down and made myself a cup of coffee. I have not had a drink of anything alcoholic since January 12, 1947. Please do not think it ended so simply and so easily. Simply, yes, it did end, for I had changed my mind about alcohol, and it stayed changed. But for the next years I worked hard and exultantly in AA. In the nearby little town there was a plumber who once had tried to get an AA group going. I went over and met him, and we two started the group up again. It is going strong still, these eight years later, and some of its members have been of great influence for good in statewide AA work. I myself have been lucky enough to help out. I have had the joy of seeing many a human being, down and out, learn to stand straight again and to proceed under his own power to happiness in life. I learned the true meaning of bread cast upon the waters. There were debts totaling nearly $10,000 to be paid off. They were almost paid. The end is in sight. I have been allowed to build an entirely new career in a field I had never worked in. I have published a book covering certain aspects of this field, which has been well-reviewed and which is helping other people. I have been appointed to the faculty of my old school to teach in my new field. All of my family and loved ones, all of my friends, are nearer and dearer to me than ever before. And I have literally dozens of new friends who say they cannot believe that a short eight years ago I was ready for the scrap heap. When I remark that I have been in jail nine times and in an alcoholic ward twice, they think I'm kidding, or possibly dramatizing for the sake of a good yarn. But I know I'm not. I remember how horrible jails are, how dreadful a thing it is to be behind steel bars. I wish we did not have to have jails. I wish everyone could be in AA. And if everyone were, there would be no need for jails, in my opinion. For I am happy. I thought I could never be happy. A happy man is not likely to do harm to another human being. Harm is done by sick people, as I was sick, and doing dreadful harm to myself and to my loved ones. For me, AA is a synthesis of all the philosophy I've ever read, all of the positive good philosophy, all of it based on love. I've seen that there is only one law, the law of love, and there are only two sins— the first is to interfere with the growth of another human being, and the second is to interfere with one's own growth. I still want to write a fine play and to get it on. I'd gladly do it anonymously, as I have done this brief account of my struggle with alcohol, merely to present certain ideas for the consideration of the reader. I don't care too much about personal fame or glory, and I want only enough money to enable me to do the work I feel I can perhaps do best. I stood off and took a long look at life and the values I found in it. I saw a paradox, that he who loses his life does indeed find it. The more you give, the more you get. The less you think of yourself, the more of a person you become. In AA we can begin again no matter how late it may be. I have begun again. At 54, I have had come true for me the old wish, if only I could live my life over knowing what I know. That's what I am doing, living again, knowing what I know. I hope I have been able to impart to you, the reader, at least a bit of what I know. 
the joy of living, the irresistible power of divine love and its healing strength, and the fact that we, as sentient beings, have the knowledge to choose between good and evil, and, choosing good, are made happy. This concludes the reading of He Who Loses His Life, from Part 3 of the Personal Stories section of the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm grateful you listened. Stay tuned for our 84th episode, which features Story 12, the very last story in the second edition, entitled Freedom from Bondage. As always, it's super easy to listen to the first and second editions of the big book, including many stories not published in later editions. Subscribe for free to all of the podcast episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or visit bigbookpodcast.com and listen to your heart's content. Oh, and if you have a chance, check out my new podcast, AA Recovery Interviews, where AAs share their stories in an interview format. There's a link to it in this episode's show notes. If you've enjoyed listening, I'd be super grateful if you can leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. And please, share this podcast with your friends, sponsees, and anyone you know who has a desire to stop drinking. It may be the only version of the Big Book they ever hear. 